Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So hey everybody, welcome to episode 191 of the More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Mitra and I am in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Jaime Lippis Jr. in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And we have Mark Rubin in San Jose, California. Hello. All righty then. So hey everybody, welcome to episode one. So let me do it again. So hey everybody, was <laughs> doing so good. You should you should do it once before we start. So the second time, because you always have to do the second time. The second time, yeah. No, it's just I just, I, the problem is no, I, I think I think minutes. if I think when I'm doing it's like you know it's funny when I yep. when I used to play hockey, people would say to me. So, like before going on the ice, they would say, "So, like, what what's involved in in being a goaltender? Like, what happens on a breakaway?" And then, of course, you know, then that immediately throws me off my game, right? So, it's like playing guitar too. If if you know how to, you play something perfectly well, and then yeah. somebody asks you to explain how to play it, and it's like, wait a minute, yeah. where does that finger go? What what you know? Yeah, it's like well, it's, it's hard. Yeah, I was participating in a speaking of guitar, speaking participating in a in a guitar thing with a, a guy named Sam Goodwin, who I met at at our three sixty I dev years and years ago, hmm. and he was running this thing with other developers uh where for 30 days you know you just you tag your record yourself playing a song and then you tag with just play and put it up on instagram and, and send it to him so but the problem is instagram only lets you store a minute of video so i would practice the song over and over again then i would try and find a minute in the song that would make a good loop mm. right and of course immediately like as soon as i start as soon as i hit record on the thing like you know i'm not hitting the chords at the right time or yeah, singing a little flat or whatever right so you're self-conscious a little bit about it i guess or something. Yeah. Well, you know what? At the end of the day, you just gotta you just gotta do it, right? And then yeah. forget about it, right? I'm sure yeah. that's you know professionals who practice or have got you know muscle memory. We'll talk about muscle memory in a little while, but yeah, it was a kind of interesting exercise to go through because you know it's kind of like you just gotta dive in with both feet and do it. Yeah. All right.
So, yeah. So um, I have a couple of quick things on our follow-up. One of them was we were talking last week about um, uh, build times in uh, Xcode, specifically with with Swift. And this is a quick one. I know know this this link is, again, on on LinkedIn. I did did put the LinkedIn note into the uh, show notes last week. So anyway, so this link here I've got in the show notes is a a quick little uh, defaults command from uh, that's listed on LinkedIn here. And it specifically talks about 9.2, the fact that you can run parallel Parallel uh, builds in Swift. Sorry, parallel be- builds in Xcode by running this command. Now, so I don't know if this is actually already in. This is talking about 9.2, but I don't know if this is already in 9.3 or it's coming in the next 9.4. But yeah, basically, it's like build system schedule inherently parallel commands exclusively boolean. You set that to no, and uh, then apparently your Xcode will run um, parallel processing for Swift files. Well, I guess Objective C stuff too. But and then there's a way to turn it off too. But uh, as I said, I don't know if that's built into um, Xcode, but that was a follow-up on our compiling time stuff we were talking about last week. Um, another one I thought was exciting for Mark was uh, that I saw the other day that um, Apple seems to be cracking down on drone flights over um, Apple Park. Yeah, I saw this article. Yeah, The gentleman named uh, Duncan Sinfield, who has been making uh, flyovers and posted them up online. And, and I think he's probably one of the guys who's been doing the flyovers since um, since the, the place when it became, went under control. Construction and now that it's finished, um, I think Apple Apple security apparently has been monitoring people flying in their sort of airspace, if you want to call it that. And they send you know they send over the uh, security guards usually to where he's where he's hanging out, and they tell him to stop, uh, stop you know, land his drones and go away. And he kind of complies, and away he goes. Um, there was a bit of a Twitter storm about this in one of the links I posted there, or in this actual article here that's in the show notes. Um, but I, I, it's just sort of interesting too. At the bottom is uh, I think we were joking about this a couple of years ago, um, but apparently it's illegal to shoot down a drone in the United States. Did you know that? I did not know that, but that's yeah, good Yeah, it's a federal know. crime to shoot down a drone. Yeah, we were speculating today at the office a little bit about, about what Apple might be developing to to uh, enforce this. And one of the things was shooting down a drone. <laughs> right. Well, I, I kind of wonder, like, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I know a little bit of drone technology, but I kind of wonder if, they, if they're coming up with some sort of, like, you know, um, electromagnetic thing or whatever, or the, or the EMP bomb or whatever, you know, it would destroy all the electronics in a certain area, but well, I wonder if they have some technology that'll be able to land the drones or something like that, right? They do. They do. I don't know if Apple specifically is doing this, but it, the technology does exist to to jam all of the uh, all of the RF or, or Wi-Fi right. in the area around the thing. Is uh, it is it is it just like is it like on the same band as other RF stuff? Or well, it, it depends on the particular vehicle. Uh, so ours uses Wi-Fi to connect, but others may not. Uh, they may use some proprietary signal that's on a different band, uh, some kind of uh, longer range. Uh, so so it depends on the particular one. Yeah, so so with ours in particular, if, if they want to jam the Wi-Fi, that might cause problems with their own Wi-Fi network. So I don't know. Yeah, that's true. I kind of want, because it's the same sort of, is it is it like the 2.4 gigahertz or 5 gigahertz? Or, it's the know? 5 gigahertz band. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. regular Wi-Fi. Yeah, I would mess things up. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Of course, knowing Apple, you know, if you try to control a drone from an iPhone like we do, Apple can probably tap into the iPhone and just turn it off. <laughs> turn off the Wi-Fi. <laughs> Maybe that's coming in 11.5. Where are we at? 11.4? <laughs> Beta for 4 yeah. is out. Yeah. Oh, 4. Yeah, so it's probably coming in there. But yeah, Somebody will find it and then publish it on Twitter or whatever, I'm yep. sure. Anywho. Uh, so this is a bit of a fun one. I, was, I walked into work today and friend of the show, uh, Manoj, who's one of my co-workers from India, was telling me, he said, oh, you don't know much about music system, music playing systems on, on uh, your phone? Because I, I think I mentioned what Amazon, or no, I mentioned, uh, what did I mention? Spotify? 
Spotify and Apple, and you know, I totally right. forgot you, Pandora. you brought Pandora and all. Anyway, so apparently, if you're if you're into the uh, Indian music, uh, Gana music or G A A N A is a popular app that he was telling me about, and uh, he speaks. I'm going to butcher this, but it's it's a it's actually a palindrome. It's Malay Helam um, is the language he speaks. So they also have Hindi and they also have Tamil. If you're into that kind of if you're looking for that kind of music, and there's also another app called from Savan Savan Music. So that's S A V A N, and they play. So if you're looking for uh, Hindi music to do coding by or Indian music, Indian tunes, you know Bollywood kind of stuff. This is these are a couple of apps that will serve that need for you. Scratch that itch, as it were. So thanks, Manoj, for that tip. Can't say I'm a fan of of Bollywood stuff that much, but I used to really like the uh, the old Beatles, George Harrison, sitar based yeah. music. That stuff was pretty good. Yeah, the East meets West stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, same kind of stuff. I think they have way more notes than we do, though, Mark. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They definitely don't use the uh, diatonic twelve note scale that scales that we have here. You no, know, they have tons of them. Yeah, I was. I mean, I, I mean, I grew up and my dad used to listen to that um, sitar music and stuff like that. And I, I like um, oh, what do you call the percussion things? Uh, tabla. Tabla. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. My sister dances some of the type of dancing. I can't remember what it's called, but you know, she, she learned it as an adult. But yeah, so we, we've been exposed to this stuff for a long time. So mm-hmm. one particular album I remember was called East Meets West, and I think it was like Ravi Shankar and and yeah, some oh, no, no, no. Who, I know violin talking, player. No, no, no. That, it was uh, Rai Cooter and Mahat Bhatt, I think was his name. A meeting yeah. by the river, right? No, this one was called East Meets West, and it was a violin, oh, and okay. a classical violin player and sitar, and he went back and forth, and it was it was like going to like a Frank Zappa concert and seeing like the the two instruments jam off each other kind of thing, right? So so if you like that, then I will recommend the disc that I was just talking about. It's actually right, right, Cooter, uh, Mohan yeah. Bhatt and Rai Cooter. Uh, cool. It was from mid nineties or so. It's called A Meeting by the River, and it's just so Rai Cooter. If anyone doesn't know, is a um, long time. It's been around since the late sixties. Uh, very accomplished um, guitarist who plays in all sorts of different styles. Uh, and uh, you know, if you look at his career, he's just changed styles a million times. Uh, but he's but he's really really a great guitarist. And so he's playing with this guy Mohan Bhatt, who is uh, a highly accomplished Indian musician uh, who plays this instrument that is guitar-like, but he invented it himself, and it's kind of a cross between a guitar and a sitar. Mm. Uh, so they just kind of jam, and, and there's a tabla player as well too. And it's it's a it's a great great disc. I'll play it for you sometime, Tim. Yeah, actually, I've got, now that you say that, I've got a couple of um, bands like that that do that mix sort of the East and West stuff. And I'm trying to think of there was another John McLaughlin did some stuff like yep. that too Shakti Shakti that's what I'm Shakti. thinking of yeah that's a yep. great that's a great album yep. too yep. a great artist I think right yeah. an artist. oh yeah John McLaughlin's fantastic of course then so bringing back to Ravi Shankar so my dad was a huge Ravi Shankar fan we went and saw Ravi Shankar play at Expo in Expo 67 in Montreal nice and then his daughter uh, played with George Harrison and a bunch of other people mm-hmm. so because uh, I think Ravi Shankar played at or and his daughter no his daughter played at, um, at George Harrison's funeral mm. and his 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 other daughter, his he has a Western daughter as well, and that's Nora Jones. Mind blown. Wait, I thought Nora Jones was Quincy Jones' daughter. No, Nora Jones like the Nora Jones, you know, the the come away with me girl. You know, come away with yeah. me. And that that's that's Ravi Shankar's daughter. Ravi Shankar's daughter? Oh. Yep. What do you know, eh? I gotta look this up. <laughs> okay. How about you? Alrighty. Um so we move on to the main stuff, the main stuff. Wow, you're right. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Of course I'm right. Yeah, no, yeah. Okay, Rashida Jones, the actress is Quincy Jones's daughter. Yeah. Moving on. All right. So, Jaime, you got something from us for um, Apple about the Apple Watch? Yeah. You know, a lot of people are using these as fitness trackers and getting swole, but uh, apparently so too has the Apple Watch 2 gotten swole, specifically <laughs> with, <laughs> specifically the 
millimeter size models, sometimes the Apple Watch 2 will uh, have a swollen battery or it will not power on. And so Apple is uh, servicing eligible devices free of charge. Again, that's the 42 millimeter sized models, not the 38, which I guess whatever the difference is in the battery is not applicable. And this is the Weird. Apple Watch 2. Now, the, the battery and the thing is all sort of melded into one thing, right? Like, is that correct in the watch? Isn't it all like hermetically sealed? Yeah, I don't think it's really user serviceable or if you follow the iFixit folks, I don't think I don't think you got more than like a one or a two in terms of repairability. So right, yeah, uh, Apple yeah. has the right tools and, and wherewithal to do that. Um, it's a little strange. I, I don't know what the expected temperature range is for Apple Watches because I've seen uh, a handful of folks, uh, one of who I know, I have not seen it in person, but they went to like Bermuda or something during a reasonably hot part of that that uh, area's you know seasons. And their watch just like mushroomed up on them. And presumably it's really? from like, you know, being out in the sun, enjoying the beach, you know, surfing or whatever it is they were doing. I wasn't sure if it was just a weird coincidence or if that was like, a, hey, yeah, you probably don't want to have the, uh, you know, jet black watch hanging out in 100 degree weather with yeah, high humidity or something. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that the iPhone, the iWatch, uh, Apple Watch 2 is roughly the same generation as the iPhone 7. And I had that swelling battery problem with the iPhone 7. A lot of people right. had this as well. So I wonder if there was something just about that generation of batteries that was bad, something in the chemistry. So Could this be. is, uh, so this isn't the current, this is the current, this watch is still on sale or this is not the latest Series 3, right? It's not the Series 3. I don't actually know if the Series 2 is still on sale. I have to yeah. check. Speaking of Manoj, I think he has a Series 2 watch now that you mentioned it, but it's, but it's not a 42, so he should be okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't get why there's a difference there. Like, why, why is the 38 not impacted? 38, yeah. Mm. I don't know. This is not, maybe it's a different lot of battery. Well, you know, again, um, Apple doesn't get all their stuff made from the same place, as far as I know. So the batteries may come from two suppliers. Maybe there's a, a bad batch or something. Or I could think of a, a couple of reasons. Maybe, so the, the, the larger one is going to require more power, just the power of the display. So they might have a, right. a different higher power battery. Uh, sort of strange that the lower power one would have the problem when the higher power one didn't, but it might have just been designed better. Uh, so they are, it, it probably is a different battery. Uh, also, maybe the 42 has a little bit more ventilation. So so the battery doesn't doesn't get as hot in normal usage and it maybe doesn't swell as, as much. No, I think, it, didn't you say that it was the 40 to 42? Oh, it's the 42 that has, oh, it does have, oh, it's the 42 that has a problem, not the 38. All right, scratch that. Uh, so, so everything at Mark said, just reverse it. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, it sounded pretty reasonable, but now I'm wondering, like, you know, uh, maybe in whatever they had to do to get it that, that particular size and with, you know, the apparently notably higher um, battery life over the 38, maybe there there's something weird there. Yeah. Um, recharge cycles, you know, on these things might be different. There's all sorts of, I'm sure, subtle differences. It just struck me as a little weird that you would think it would be across both devices since they're roughly the same size. Yeah. Right. Cool. Hey, so what's new in Swift 4.2, Jaime? Well, first of all, the fact that it even exists is something that's, uh, we were talking about this before the show, we think it's probably still considered in beta if you're the kind of person like us who says, you know, until it's in an officially supported version of Xcode, that is something you can get from like the App Store, it's it's effectively still in beta, even if the tool chain is available for then. Uh, there's some, some nice things in here. I don't think it's going to be anything that anybody will, you know, uh, cry tears of joy over, I would guess. But there's some nice things like deriving collections of enum cases. So mm-hmm. if you've tried to do anything with your enums, it's kind of a hassle to have, you know, all right, we want to have a count of what we have here. In some cases, maybe
maybe it's like for a test or maybe you want to enumerate through some things and it's kind of a hassle that you couldn't just do oh well how many of these darn cases do i even have now apparently swift will automatically generate an all cases property that's an array of your cases and then you can just get a count on them if you wanted to for example um i think something i will like is the warning and error diagnostic directives where you can leave a little uh, hashtag, you know, hashtag or pound warning pound error um they, they talk about it from like an sdk standpoint i think for me since i tend to do a lot of like scratch coding like all right you know i'll put it to do here for you know come back and clean this up or come back and refactor this but now i could use a warning and then when i go to build it's like oh holy smokes i st- still forgot to take out that you know to do or to put some real implementation somewhere that had some you know mocked out sort of thing yeah i like that we used to have that in objective c and it and it's been painfully missing in swift so far so i'm glad to see that yeah those were in the templates right initially right like if you made a table view and you hadn't set the number of rows or whatever it would yeah maybe so yeah but i would do exactly what Jaime does is is if if there's something that i need to remember to come back to you put a uh, a pound warning in there and and it shows up you know if if you try like i do to to make your your builds free of all warnings uh tim i know you try pretty hard to do that too (laughs) Uh, well uh, i'm not even going to talk to you about the code base at work okay yeah. yeah But anyway, so so if you put a if you put one of these pound warnings in there, it's very obvious when it shows up in the in the build because you know if you don't have too many warnings, then it's it's very clearly there. So if you forgot to address your to do, it's very it's very painfully obvious when you do build. So it was very useful. Right, that is a pretty terrible encrypt method of encryption he's got there. Um, what else yeah. have you got there, honey? So I think we heard about this one before. So I'm, I'm actually surprised it was four point two. I thought it had already launched in four point one, but the dynamic member lookup that helps with interoperability with dynamic languages like Python, like we talked about for Swift and TensorFlow as an example. Um, but not only just interop with those dynamic languages, but without losing all the benefits of having a uh, type safe language like Swift. So this is pretty, pretty neat. Um, I'm kind of curious as to what the like the limits of that are, like if it, if it really is completely sort of typed there, or if it's more like, well, at least you're looking in this one spot and you can, you know, ensure like, oh, if it's wrong, at least it's wrong in, in one very obvious way versus, you know, just flinging it across the wall with like a like an any type that you might do with the Objective C interrupt. Um, let me take a quick look. What other things do we have here? There's a, a proposal. It sort of mentions partway through the DNF piece about uh, from Chris Latner apparently. Uh, give an example of a JSON enum that uses the dynamic member lookup to create a more natural syntax for navigating through JSON, which is kind of nice. Like it it still has optionals in there, but it loses the braces part. It loses or you know, eliminates. I should say not loses. It eliminates braces. It eliminates the the quotation marks for the strings you know when you're trying to do the the lookup of like you know navigate through this json structure or hierarchy so that might be something you might do there's also some stuff about conditional conformances that seems to continue to the the, uh, the ever expanding path of making those something you can tinker with and and really get the case that you want and i think probably the the most controversial one in terms of how the uh, swift community dealt with it is the toggle for booleans which will mm-hmm. quite simply toggle or flip between true and false depending on what the current boolean value happens to be. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, and these are these are not necessarily things that are these are these are proposals that have been accepted into the code base, right? That's what these are. These SE001199 codes here, right? Those are from the the pull requests, right? So they that's why maybe some of these aren't guaranteed to be in the next release of 3.2 or 4.2. You know, that's a good question. I didn't check out every one of the proposals. I was under the impression that these were ones that had been at least accepted in principle even if they hadn't actually merged into the the 4.2 code base. Right. But I believe the intention is to have them available in 4.2. Of course, this is from Paul Hudson, aka Two Straws on Twitter, um, or Hacking in Swift is his site and or books, 
right? That is correct. And uh, I think he was on Roundabout at one point, so you can check him out there as well. All right. And what's next there, Jaime? So this is a blog post by, uh, what's the name? Yahim Kurz. Kurz? Kurz? Kurz, probably. I apologize for getting that name wrong. It's a blog post entitled, Why You Should Not Name Your At IB Actions Did Tap Button or Similar, like uh, Did Tap Cancel Button, as an example. Um, the basic premise of this, and it's not a very, very long read, is rather than having, like uh, like in this example, it gives a UI bar button item that does a selector of did cancel, or sorry, did tap cancel button. And this premise is like, well, what's really happening there? Like, does it does it really matter? Um, maybe on iOS, you can just assume that somebody did some sort of tap or gesture or other sort of touch thing. But when you think about where these things came from for macOS, uh, it might be a keyboard event. It might be a mouse event. Now with the, I forget what it what it's called, the touch bar on the, the new MacBook Pros. Right. It yeah. might be a completely different thing. Like they're all sort of the same thing, right? And his, his premise is this is really more of a uh, name these things like a command, like cancel, save, send message, instead of did tap cancel button, save button tapped, and did hit send. So I'm sure you've probably seen code bases. I've certainly been, you know, guilty of this myself. Where, okay, well, this was like a did cap, you know, did tap cancel button. And I was like, oh, well, there's like a little shortcut or like a little gesture or something you can do to also cancel. What does that gesture do? It causes you to say, did, you know, perform selector, did tap cancel. I was like, well, that I didn't really tap cancel there, did I? I, I canceled, logically canceled, you know, the command that he's talking about, but I didn't actually tap there. So I don't know that this is the sort of thing that necessarily is uh, transformative for your code base, but I thought it was a pretty sensible approach to, to the naming of some of these. Thoughts, questions. Yeah, he comments. talks a bit about patterns in this. Like that's part of his argument, right? But uh, and interesting, interesting. That he's got links to the other types of patterns that are that fall under model view controller or massive view controller, as I like to call it. Um, but yeah, so I mean, it's funny because I I've always sort of used like save button, save like name the button and then what the action was tapped or whatever. But you're right; it makes sense if it could be a keyboard click, it could be a whatever. But and if the purpose is to save, then then perhaps that's what you should say: save or cancel or whatever. As opposed to, um, you know, but usually I don't know. I mix it up a bit, but um. I, I used it. I used the did tap. Now, since since the guy's the name of his blog is Joaquim complains about things, <laughs> I'll cut him some slack, and I won't argue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's fine. It's his opinion, and he's happily entitled to it. But but you know, I, I'm not going to change the way I do things because of it. Yeah, but it might it might sort of um, um, confuse newer coders with you know the um, property observers like did did uh, did set and will set that kind of stuff, right? Uh, is it did set? You know what I mean? Like yeah. when, yes, when like in it, Swift for for a property. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When a property mutates, you want to basically like, like we used to use notifications for back in the day. You know, now we have these property observers. We can you know, respond to something. So the using the did action word, I mean, um, might confuse that, right? Yeah. So if, if I have a situation where there might be confusion like that, and in particular the case you mentioned where something else might trigger the same thing, uh, what I'll typically do, and this might be a little bit too verbose for some people, but but I'll typically have a different an IB action for each type of thing and then they call the same function. So the actual right. cancel yeah, yeah. is a separate function that gets called by the did tap cancel button. I don't always do that but if if there's a possibility of, of confusion then then I'll do that kind of thing. True and it's, it's similar to how core data does it too because it, core data just has that uh, if you can save sort of thing. Right? What's, what's the syntax? I forget what it is but they have this one method you call when you want to update your core data database right? Yeah save. Right. Okay. Oh the, yeah it's something there's something like if 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 changes are needed it's that's not what it's called but it has that effect right? 
if yeah. if something changed, then save the context. Yeah. Or it's like a table road, you know, reload ta- reload data or whatever it is, right? Table load, table view, reload table, reload data. You could call that inside an IB action kind of thing. Well, that's that makes more sense to me. That's like, consistent. To have with, a function that does the action and or or does the logic, but maybe call it but call it within a a did tap button kind of thing, right? Or did click key or whatever. Yeah. The you know, the the action did occur. It's right. It, it happened in the past by the time the method is called. So what's wrong with did tap? That's my opinion. Everyone's opinions are equally valid, I suppose, for this kind of thing. Yeah, I think in this case, to Tim's point there, he's really coming from a like pat- design pattern purity standpoint where the name of did tap is much closer to like a delegate call sort of thing. Like, you know, should highlight, did highlight, you know, that sort of thing, which I get. I, I understand that. So there is potential for confusion there. The the one downside I can see for going this route, even though I'm, I'm interested in trying it out my own code base and sort of see like, okay, does it, does it still make sense? Especially when you have uh, multiple sources of where this event might have occurred from uh, to Mark's point, right? Of like, oh, you've got like five different buttons that might potentially do the same thing. Because uh, you got like one in, a, in a, like a floating toolbar and one in like, you know, the navigation bar or or whatever your, your particular UI is. It does sort of, his, his method here does really sort of depend on people knowing uh, one of the existence of NS responder, UI responder, um, and how they work in the responder chain. So that's that's probably like the one criticism I would have towards um, sort of accessibility towards folks getting, you know, just into iOS or macOS development, where I think target action sort of makes sense in terms of a, you know, I tap this button and it's going to call this selector. Okay, that's cool. It's less straightforward when you have a, oh, I have some sort of control widget here or UI view even, I guess, that when it gets tapped on or long pressed or whatever the case is, it is going to say, okay, I'm sure I have great faith in my heart that somebody in the responder chain will respond to this and deal with, you know, uh, what cut, copy, paste, lowercase word, scroll to end of document sort of thing. And I think that's where it gets a little bit harder for folks because it's it's less obvious. It's like, well, how's that happening? It's it's like not directly connected, uh, especially if you're using something like uh, Interface Builder. It's less obvious of like, oh, this blue line touches this other thing, right? Like it, it touches this method name, did tap button. I feel like that's, that's something that I haven't really 100% gotten the handle on like how to explain to people. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so the next piece was just something I read this morning on uh, CNBC.com about, you know, Apple's uh, current struggle. Or, I, I don't know if it's a struggle or not, but uh, there, there, there are pieces about how Apple's running out of choices and space and uh, things to do on the on the bezel of the phone as, as we anticipate what the next bunch of phones are going to look like um, and how some other companies, and I'm talking specifically about the notch. And I think that um, they're saying in the article that um, the, the the fact that Apple's asking us to get you know used to using the, the what do they call it super retina display on the iPhone 10 um, that it makes it sound like the notch is here to stay for a while uh, we've seen other sort of proposals of people making small like the fact that the notch is going to get smaller and smaller and yet you know we've got competitor uh, phones Samsungs and the like that are embracing the notch as it were now, there's an interesting one here interesting example of a, of a camera a phone with a camera and sensors in it that the uh, it's the whole display slides up so almost like the you know the sliding keyboard used to be on the uh, the Blackberries, but they would slide up from underneath the phone. Um, this one slides up, and and then you've got the camera. So you end up having a full you know edge to edge screen kind of thing. Um, and uh, there's a they quote Jason Snell yeah, in I the see, article I see here. Two issues with that. One is it's hard enough to, to take a picture quickly the way it is now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Slide another thing up. That's going to be even harder. And that mechanical slide action, I could see breaking sure fairly yeah. quickly, fairly easily if you take a lot of pictures. Anyway, yeah, like like uh, FaceTime happens real quick, you know, like in 
know, and if you had to, oh, well, you got to open the camera yeah. up. To, yeah, you know, what, exactly. Yeah, struggle, struggle. And then you were using two hands and not one. And, well, who knows? Anyway, just an idea. Um, but they also quote Jason Snell here in the art- article about uh, Apple's war on buttons and how, you know, the, the headphone jack disappeared a few years ago. Here here we go again with the headphone jack. But, you know, that basically made the made them, gave them the capability to make a smaller, uh, narrower phone because they got rid of that big, bulky 1970s, you know, style headphone jack, right? Um, microphone, micro, mic, was it mini phone or mic, mini phone, I think it's called, right? Um, and, uh, you know, getting the, um, getting rid of the home button this year and uh, which, you know, sort of face face ID allowed them to get rid of the home the home button um, and uh, do different kinds of things. So I don't know if you guys have had a chance to look at this article at all or skim through it. I have a prediction. But, you is know, that- it's funny. I started reading it and I thought it was kind of a joke because they're saying yeah. that their big problem is they're, they're running out of things to cut out. <laughs> and right. <laughs> Apple is running out of iPhone options to drop is one of the, the bullet points at the top. So I thought it was a humorous piece. But yeah, I it's guess kind of a lost leader article title, I guess. Caught my attention. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but interesting here at the end, they're talking about uh, in their prediction on the sizes that are going to come out. They're predicting a you know 5.8 OLED uh, model of the iPhone 10, which I think is what we have now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a 6.5 inch uh, display of the iPhone 10, which is more like a plus size. And, oh, sorry, a 6.1 inch. What do we have now? 6.1? Anybody know? Not off the top of my head. Oh, the yeah. the iPhone, the, the plus size models were five and a half inch screens, and I think four points, yeah. four point seven yeah, four, for. Four point, I thought the the seven six seven eight were four point seven, right? And the mm-hmm. and the pluses were five point something, weren't they? You know, I'm going to look up that. I thought it was five point five, but it, it might not be a full half. Mm-hmm. It might be like five point three five or some weird number. Um, and I couldn't tell you what the iPhone 10 is, and it's uh... so. If you remember, we had that link back in episode. I think it was 162 from Point Paint Code. They had that um, uh, diagram which gave uh, the different sizes. iPhone 10 screen demystified. I think this is my pick, actually. Oh, here we go. iOSref.com has a resolution by device, but then it also has diagonal size. So okay, starting with the uh, the originals, three and a half inch, the SE, which includes the five five C, you know that sort of class is four inch. Uh, Mark was quite right that the six, seven, eight in their S models were 4.7. And I was surprisingly correct on the plus models being five and a half. And it turns out the iPhone 10 is 5.8. Okay, good. Yeah. So uh, we talked about this on episode 162. Like I said, the, the, um, uh, paint code people at paintcode.app, paintcodeapp.com, um, had the ultimate guide to iPhone resolutions, which, which gives you the pixel sizes as well as the, the diagonal measurements, diagonal, diagonally. Um, Is that a Harry Potter joke? I wasn't yeah, sure. it was definitely a Harry <laughs> Potter joke. Um, yeah, so at the bottom there, they got the uh, the different resolution. And it, so this this was an interesting article because it talked about what the actual physical rent, um, pixel density is and then what it actually works out to in code. You know? But, you know, if this, going back to this article, if the rumor is true, that means they're introducing two, Yet another size. two new sizes. <laughs> yeah. Right? A 6.5-inch OLED, so it's a, you know, 10 plus, uh, and then a 6.1 which is uh, like an eight plus plus <laughs> right right so so in theory if they don't if they don't uh, get rid of it in the old models we'll have a we'll have a 4.7 a 5.5 and a 6.1 LCD and then a 5.8 and a 6.5 OLED and then an SE size which is the four inch one was it four inch yeah no not four inch uh, whatever well whatever the SE was wow that's oh, a lot of stuff on the ultimate uh, SE yes SE is four inch four inch okay yeah 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 well hopefully if, if this actually happens they'll 
they'll finally, and it's and it's long overdue, introduce some new size classes instead of just the the four that they've got right now. Hmm, really? Yeah, it's like, okay, are you an iPad? No. Okay. Are you, so you're an iPhone, so are you in landscape or portrait? Is not exactly how size classes break down, but they pretty much break pretty down. Pretty much right, are, which yeah. Is, except that some of them, the pluses are a little bit different than some of the other ones, and, and, and there's no way using size classes to differentiate between, uh, say, a, uh, well, this isn't so much an issue anymore, but, but back in the days of the, you know, the 3.75 versus the four inch device, which is right. So the, the, yeah, the, the, the 460 height devices versus the 568 height devices. Yeah. Uh, 460, and, 480, and 480 and 560. And the yeah. same thing on the, on the iPads where you can't tell me an iPad mini and a 9.7 inch iPad. And oh, by the way, the ginormous 12.9 inch iPad Pro, like, oh yeah, those all just get like the same yeah, layouts. Treat them well, the same. Yeah. I mean, okay, maybe, maybe by default and you do sort of like a uh, front to center out kind of uh, design, but you don't always want that. You're like, all right, look, I, I really don't need these table view cells to be this wide. Maybe right. I might want to put like a toolbar or something there if I knew that it was something that could be accommodated. Yep. Yep. Say so a mini is small enough to be uh, considered like one dimension. And then, you know, the iPad Pro, like the 12 inch or even the 10 inch, um, you know, you got more screen real estate to sort of split off, a t- you know, uh, um, split view or something like that, right? To lay the, lay the app out differently on the larger size. And and how does a mini compare to the six and a half inch device? It's probably pretty comparable, right? Uh, yeah. And yeah. So, so the mini would be a regular, regular, whereas a six and a half inch, what's that going to be? Is that going to be compact, regular? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and now we, and that, well, and again, we throw the 10 into the mix. We've got this safe area nonsense with the, the home area at the bottom and the, you know, the notch at the top, right? right. So, and, and I think, so, and also keeping in mind that they're going to, I think they're going to advance with, with this, what, what they're now calling secure ID, by the way. Um, the, you know, the com- combination, if you have a face ID sensor, um, like the true, to- true, true, what's it called, true depth camera, um, coming to these other devices, you know, you, you want to basically, maybe the screen size stays the same in terms of what we have for a plus and, an, and, an, and like an eight now, add a notch to that, and then you get the larger phone, right? Or larger screen. Um, that notch is here to stay if, if, if we're going to keep moving forward with, you know, no home buttons and um, and face ID, right? Or to secure ID, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and we, and we I think see. you were also asking for face ID on the uh, on the iPads too, Mark, right? Yeah, I want that. Yeah, it is super convenient. Well, yeah. It's funny, I still have, I still find myself, um, you know, doing something that requires face ID and remembering, oh yeah, I got to keep looking at the phone while it opens or don't yawn or put your hand in your mouth or whatever or, or eat a sandwich <laughs> while you're using face ID because it doesn't work, right? <laughs> yeah, so. Where's the home button? And, and the home button was a lot more com- more convenient if you just wanted, you know, had your phone laying on the table and you just wanted to wake it up without actually having to pick it up or look at it or whatever, right? So yeah, first world problems, we're yep. still here. Yep. <laughs> I think the sort of underlying premise of the article is like at some point when you take these phones down to what could they possibly be? It's probably like what Tony Stark has in Iron Man 2. It's a transparent or translucent piece of like acrylic or glass or something that's magically powered. It's probably like a piece of paper in terms of its thickness. So it's nearly two dimensional uh, and and yet has an all day battery life. And I guess maybe it unfolds to be the the size of a desktop screen and yet can be folded up back to fit into your pockets. Um, you know, it's, it, it plays beautiful uh, surround sound music and 
you know, all, add every possible thing. Uh, at some point, you hit that diminishing returns of like, well, what can we really add to phones? And how will Apple sell? Like, oh, look, it's the 2029 iPhone. Look how awesome it is. It's way better than last year's. I mean, we're, we're sort of like that with laptops, right? Like before the touch bar and its related touch ID, what was the last thing you vaguely remember that was really cool on laptops? Multi-touch pad. That little wheel, that I little guess. ball in the middle there was pretty cool. <laughs> the high-res beach ball from when they went to Retina displays? Is that one? <laughs> no, no. The, the the very first PowerBooks had the had the little ball. You know how you had the you had the you know, basically it was a mouse ball upside down, right? And it was like a like the, remember that missile command game? Oh, the trackball. Oh yes, trackball. Trackball. Yes. That was called. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and Mark, I think I heard you say the the multi-touch trackpad yeah. for gestures yeah. and stuff. Yeah. yeah, but it's kind of far and few between, right? It wasn't like every year there was you know something really cool, or at least there hasn't been something that I can think of for like every year, year in year out. Like, oh, this is a new cool thing. Um, and I think that's sort of what this article is getting at. Like eventually when you've removed all the buttons and you've got unlimited battery life and it's got, you know, 7G internet connectivity, you know, that sort of thing. What what will there be left? I don't know. Like, I guess it would be the commodity at that point. Um, and it would, it would, you know, as, as much as people uh, like to proclaim that, oh, yeah, it was, it's just marketing and branding, it, it might actually be at that point, right? Like what's, what's the real demonstrable difference between like, I don't know, like a Louis Vuitton bag and like a bag you buy at Walmart. There is some qualitative difference, but not enough to justify that that price difference, right? Of you know twenty thousand dollars versus twenty dollars. I think that's what this article was getting at. Mm-hmm. Remains to be seen. With that said, I think very strongly prediction wise that there will be the gold iPhone ten series two or S or whatever whatever they call it. But the solid gold edition, you mean? Or uh, it's sort of like the um, gosh, when did they stop doing this? You know how they had the gold and the rose gold beyond just right. the yep. silver and, and space gray. Maybe they'll have a ceramic one. Maybe I'm still holding <laughs> out for like. <laughs> You know, Apple's really at that point where they could do, you know, slightly upgraded internals for the iPhone 10 to make it the 10-2 or 10 Series 2, but to make sure that it doesn't get, you know, lost in the shuffle of like, oh, look, it's so boring. Just literally give it a different color and there will be, you know, many, many digital bits spilled for like, oh, gosh, like, oh, this is so great. Like, which one did you order? Oh, of course I ordered the whatever the new color is, you know, so people will know that I have the new one and like it or not, I think that's what people really sort of glom onto. And I think that's okay. I'd like to see them offer more colors. I mean, if, if you really wanted a banana yellow iPhone 10, <laughs> why not? Like, I'd like a purple rain edition MacBook Pro. How like, about the Dalmatian one? Remember the Dalmatian Mac? No. No, I don't. <laughs> I sure hope you have a picture of that. We'll put that in the show notes for those of you driving at home. Yeah. No, they, it was remember, pretty, they did try colors with the 5C and it wasn't a huge hit. Right. Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, I could see was... more metallic colors. Those were kind of bright neon-y colors, but like more mm-hmm. more colors like, like a rose gold style color, you know, or brushed a, aluminum, yeah, stainless steel, yeah, like those aftermarket ones where they anodize the, the color on there, so it looks sort of like sure. the yeah. um, like the iPods of around three or four years ago, probably when they had the multiple mm-hmm. colors there, and they would have that uh, sort of shiny finish to them, so they didn't feel cheap like the iPhone 5C ran into. I think where it wasn't necessarily color, it was sort of like, well, it, it feels cheap. Uh, you have elected to buy the El Cheapo model, so people kind of judge you on that. Yeah, I think the 
iPhone five C ran into a lot of those issues. Yeah, hmm. trying to shame you out of buying the cheap one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like it was better to have like a, a oh well you you actually bought the cheaper model because it was last year's model, but nobody knows that, right? They just think oh well you bought it when it was new and you probably just hung onto it for longer. Yeah, that's like nobody buys the you know the bright orange version of the car even though it's thousand dollars cheaper, right? They they buy the silver or the black because it's it looks better. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, speaking of color, and before we move on to our picks, I was over at the printer today looking at uh, the space gray color for our T-shirts. Hmm. So, and, of course, it's spelled space gray in the Canadian version, so we can stay out of court with Apple. Um, yeah. So it's going to look good. Wait, which one is that for the Canadian no, version? Because There's no O's in there. How can it be spelled Canadian? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's how we spell the color. The color gray is spelled differently oh, in the color. UK and space Canada. gray color. I get it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. Apple, I think Apple spells it with an A or an E, space gray, right? I always get this wrong. I think A is the American, uh, the Americanized mm-hmm. version, and the British and presumably Canadian one is E. Is that correct? No, I think it's the other way around. You know, there's a gray versus gray in the grammarist website here um g-r-a-y no you're right g-r-a-y is more common in american english yeah hmm. it's like the metric system you know <laughs> i mean it just makes more sense a-y you know day yeah. gray it's a gray day sure. do you have a gray monkey no it's a gray monkey but you say hey right. you don't say he yeah that's a true point Depends on your pronunciation. Yeah, where's Greg when we need him to, to cover the etymology of all these things? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, the etymology is different than, than pronunciation. That's a different story altogether. All right, well, speaking of um, speaking to things, I mean, let's do our picks. What do you got for a pick there? The first one is from the uh, Machine Learning Journal that Apple has. So we've covered the oh, yeah, articles that, right, a few times. Thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. This is what? Volume 1, Issue 9, mm-hmm. April 2018, the personalized Hey, followed by the word Siri, uh, which talks about a little bit, uh, a slightly bit of the history of that that feature and where it started and also how they handle the uh, speaker that is the individual recognition not that speaker in the home pod style of how does it know that it is you talking to siri as opposed to your partner for example this one seems to be a little bit more um textually uh, explained rather than i think some of the other articles we've looked at that had more uh, more charts definitely more mathematics on there this one seems to describe more the sort of general approach that they they use to um what are they called the dnn is it like deep neural network is that what that stands for? Yeah, I think so. Yes. Yeah. So how they, they, they help improve that and make it, you know, cheaper, better, faster at recognizing you with, you know, fewer false positives and false negatives. I don't have a ton else to say about this other than, you know, it's a pretty good read. Um, I don't know if the if the other two folks here uh, had a chance to read this or have nope. uh, general opinions on the uh, personalized "Hey" followed by the word "Siri." I've not had a chance to read it. Not really. Can you change it from "Hey Siri" to something else? No. So this isn't like changing the the wake word. This is about um, how it gets better at recognizing who you are versus right, you right. know kids in the room that sort of thing. I think this is part of the. I don't, I don't really fully understand why it's different for Siri on you know like the iPhone versus I don't know. They never seem to cover iPad or Apple Watch and HomePod is probably the, the bigger one because you'll probably share that with more people just by consequence of you. You're only going to have one or two HomePods like in a room and it's not as if you have one per person. You're, you're, you're all listening to the music or the news or you're know, doing whatever it is. And I think a, a big stumbling block for people is okay, well, it needs to recognize me versus my spouse and we might have kids. So sure, it would be nice if they couldn't order stuff from Domino's or, <laughs> or just annoy us while we're trying to be 
you know, in quiet time and doing other things. And I don't fully understand why it's not consistent across them. Like why um, personalized Siri on your phone versus like your watch or your Apple iPad or your HomePod, like how those work. But I'm hoping, you know, hoping that they'll be uh, not too far away from it being like pretty seamless. You know, if you say, hey, what's on my calendar today? It recognizes this is me against my calendar. If my, you know, fiance says, hey, what's on the calendar? It recognizes, oh, her calendar. And that, you know, it should be personalized for her. Cool. What's next? Second one was uh, one that came about to me, my attention on Twitter. So if you remember and, and used to love NS Hipster by Matt Triple T Thompson, um, maybe you forgot about him for a while because he, he went into the uh, the mothership that was Apple, disappeared for a while, but uh, but now he's back out in the real world. And uh, he and uh, another individual are introducing a book series for Swift developers. It's called Flight School. So we have mm-hmm. both the original tweet that talks about how they'll have uh, each month they'll explore, uh, as they say here, an essential part of iOS, macOS, and Swift development through concise, focused guides. And their first one that is available is the Flight School Guide to Swift Codable. And that looks like it will be available as of this writing on April 20th. And you have a PDF ebook and sample playground, uh, sample code in playgrounds. And I, I think what they're doing here is, is using a, that uh, Flight School sort of theme for, for like pilots, airline pilots, as right, an example. Right. Um, and I wish I had a better sense of what all the themes were that they were going to cover, but covering something like Codable and, and all the different sort of nuances for that, where, you know, once you once you veer off the, the very easy to demo path, you know, what, what can you do to, to make this better for you? Um, yeah, this, this is kind of interesting. I'm, I'm wondering if these are, as opposed to being like full-size books, if they're sort of mini books, because Codable really how, I mean, it's 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 a great technology, but how much can you really write about it, right? Uh, it's not mm-hmm. going to be a 300-page yeah. book. So I'm wondering if these are like mini almost you know super tutorials or something yeah so i wonder you know what the price point is going to be for these things like a novella sort of size sort of see. yeah does it show up yeah or they're like chapters out of a book a bigger book right right so. right well this first one is 14 dollars us when i clicked on the the buy and it brings up the i don't know stripe or paypal ui i guess mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um it's a hundred apparently it's going to be a 125 page book mm-hmm. with sample code uh, 10 sample code projects so it looks like they reading on the one two three four five bullets here it covers different aspects of like dealing with the corner cases with Codable, um, a more practical example of using Codable against the iTunes search API, um, using it in concert with user defaults to persist data across app launches, um, working with uh, core data and uh, quoting here, learn the best way to use core data with external data sources and also implementing a custom encoder for the message pack format from scratch and understanding how binary serialization formats work. I think it's more than just the like all right here's straight up how codable works here's your coding keys here's what you need to do for camel case versus snake case that sort of thing i, mm-hmm. I think that's why it's you know 125 pages and 14 dollars us mm-hmm. right right and it's illustrated <laughs> yeah the illustrations are really nice it doesn't really come across in an you know an audio medium like podcasts but uh go check out the link we'll have it in the show notes very delightful illustrations yeah all right so i wrote this article two weeks ago and um it seems to have gotten a bit of attention around the twitterverse and been retweeted it's been mentioned on linkedin it's been mentioned on podcasts other than this one and um the other places some some mailing lists and stuff like that for ios developers so i guess in terms of a shameless plug i think i should talk about this article that i wrote and um well it's called how to keep learning after 50 and other ways to hack your brain at any age and so the assignment was to sort of write an article about how to how to what did what do you do about learning once you once you're uh, in your advancing years how do you learn code and stuff like that and it's 
funny in, in conversa- conversations with uh, various other developers around the the globe for the last you know two months that I was working on this article. It, it didn't dawn on me that I didn't actually ship my first app until I was fifty. So um, back in twenty ten. So um, which you know I didn't really think about much because you know in my head I'm still the same guy I was when I was seventeen eighteen years old. Right? I don't know who the old guy I look in the mirror is. I keep seeing some strange guy there. But anyway, don't you see um, your dad? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't really see my dad, but I just see some strange guy. Yeah, okay. I'm going to the yeah, bathroom. I see yeah. a weird guy in the mirror there. Um, but so what happened was, that, so I initially started out by writing the article by um, doing a, like a, a poll online on Twitter initially, and then we moved it to uh, a Google poll, and I had people answer some questions about their backgrounds and got some fascinating stories from people. But I mean, I had more more stories than I could use in the uh, in the actual article because what happened was um, one of my oldest friends, and I've, I just calculated, I've known him for 42 years. Um, he sent me a link to uh, a video. He's basically a, a ba- he's been building banjos and playing. He's an art, he's a visual artist and he's been working. We went studied art together in high school and then we went on to university together. Um, and we we reconnected about uh, twenty years ago, I guess, um, after not seeing each other for a while. But um, he sent me this link about uh, how to learn how to play banjo, and it was written by a uh, neuroplastician or a brain doctor, basically. And he talks about how initially laid the groundwork for how the brain works and how you form memories and how um, you're, you're, you actually learn things, right? And um, so it turns out, you know, as I joke in the beginning of the article, you can teach an old dog new tricks. In fact, that saying you can't teach an old an old dog new tricks is is actually a misnomer. It's all about, you know, bad habits and things like that that you you develop and they're hard to get rid of. That's, that's what that means. So this whole concept of neuroplasticity kind of sort of led me down an, another path. And so I took the article and I converted it into uh, what I think is the main part of this thing is how to basically hack your own brain and and how to uh, first of all understand how how your memories are formed in your brain how short term memory works how long term memory works and then how to basically create new structures and and uh, behaviors so that you know when you're trying to learn code for instance um, initially you kind of go through it and it's a bit of a bit of fog and then with repetitive use uh, over and over again uh, you eventually start to form um, structures in your brain so so the, the base, basically the, the TLDR, when you first learn something, you, you create chemical changes in your brain, but those don't last very long, which is why, you know, when you sit down and start doing a new course or learn and pick up a new book, like the, the books we were just talking about, and you go through them, it seems like everything sort of gels and everything's happening really fast. Or if you go to a boot camp or something like that, or you watch a video, you know, initially the learning sort of seems to go at a good steady clip. And then after a while, like, you know, after a week or so, it kind of slows down and you kind of lose track of it. And if you don't continually practice and do it over and over and over again, those chemical um, memories you've made, they kind of just disappear and get replaced by other ones, right? So um, by taking, by breaking down your tasks into smaller chunks, like maybe you would learn about table view controllers and you kind of learn everything you can about those, but in short spurts, not in like, you know, 24-hour stints or, you know, weekend hacks or whatever. You know, take practice small things. And, and the analogy of playing banjo or learning to play in a musical instrument works out well here because rather than trying to learn to play Villa Strangiato by Rush, which is an amazing guitar piece, which will take you 20 years to learn. Um, break it down and learn like a small part. Le- learn a passage or learn a phrase and keep practicing that particular phrase until you, the next type of memory is formed, which is a structural one where your brain actually forms a, a more permanent um, connection in your brain. And then over time, you'll build up all these skill, these little micro skills. And this is kind of how a- even agile parallels, agile workflows parallel, because you have you talk about having micro skills. You work on small pieces of of a larger thing. And 
And then eventually, if you practice these things over and over again, um, you will create what's a behavioral pattern, right? So that you will sit down, like, you know, if you, like when I started working on computers, I didn't know how to type, right? And and over the 20 years or whatever that I've been doing this, now I, I don't touch type, but I don't have to look at the keyboard anymore to sort of hunt and peck for keys because I just, you know, my fingers and my brain have now formed that muscle memory that kind of knows where those letters on the keyboard are without having to look at it per se, right? You know, and then, then, you, then I can finesse it and take a typing course and learn how to do touch typing as well. But so it's kind of, it's an interesting story because it's not about, you know, and I think that everybody we talk to about, um, about learning how to do new things when you're an older person or at any age, really, it's all about practice and repetitive work. And, and the thing about being an older person and learning to do things like I spoke to a lot of developers who, you know, have started shifting iOS apps, you know, in their fifties, sixties, and some of them even in their seventies, right. Is that the need to learn or the, or the ability to learn or to continually be curious and trying to learn the new things is, is kind of how we kind of stay young, if you will. Right. And that's sort of uh, what the article is about. And, um, for me, the main takeaway was, was in researching the, the, the piece was learning how my brain worked. And that's kind of how I worked into the, into this, uh, into this article. In fact, I started doing, um, started learning things or trying to learn things in using these sort of methods I'm talking about here, like using the micro skills and that kind of stuff. And like the, I think I talked about at the beginning of the show or earlier in the show, we talked about that guitar challenge that I did. Just learning that one little minute piece of music was easy enough to do. As an example, I, I was kind of, uh, I was writing this article, Tammy knew about it before it was published. And uh, so we were at our um, RW DevCon and we were uh, asked to, pre- we're, we're called conditional breakpoints. We play with James Dempsey in the breakpoints when he's at RW DevCon. And he has this one song called The Leaky Song. Last year, uh, Tammy and I played with him and the year before we played with him. But in the middle of the song, he's got this bridge, which we never really learned, the two of us, right? And so I sat down and I took it upon myself to, to sit down with Tammy and, and use this brain hacking technique on her and on me to learn the bridge before we went on stage. And I sat, so I sat down for a couple of hours beforehand and we just learned that one particular bridge, which you only play for like, you know, four bars or something like that, right? But we played it over and over and over again. We did that sort of thing like Wayne Gretzky, like in the article I talk about how Wayne Gretzky would practice after the practice was over, the team would leave the ice and he would go with a bucket of pucks and he would shoot at the same corner of the net over and over and over again and just practice that, you know, finesse that shot. You you hear about people like Tiger Woods doing the same kind of thing where they would practice the same golf chip over and over and over again to the point where it becomes muscle memory and it becomes something you can use. And then if it ever happens in the middle of a game, for instance, and Gretzky gets that opportunity to put the puck in the corner of the net, he's already got the skills to do that. Like his body's already tuned, he's already got his brain set and that kind of stuff. So it's an interesting read. Um, I'm going to go into more detail on it later on, I think, but if I get the opportunity. But um, it's interesting to sort of to sort of take time to watch the two videos that I link in the, in the in the story. Maybe I'll link them in the show notes as well. One is from the um, the uh, banjo teacher. Let me just go where his. Have you guys read this article, by the way? Yes, I read it when I think when Ray tweeted about it. If I wasn't right, mistaken. Okay. So the Doctor oh. Turk Turknet is the banjo player, um, and uh, Doctor Laura Boyd is a she has a TEDx talk from Vancouver where she talks more specifically about how the brain structure, uh, how the three types of memory uh, performed, you know, the, the stru- chemical, the structural, and the functional, which is great because I got to do a functional pr- programming joke, right? Yeah, but in the, uh, and her takeaways, yeah, basically, you know, study, here's her quote, um, study how and what you learn best, repeat the behaviors that are healthy for your brain, break those behaviors and habits that are not, practice, and learning is about doing the work that your brain requires. And basically her, her takeaway is go out and build the brain that you want. So basically hack your own brain. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll link these two videos into the into the bottom there of um, of our show notes as well. But I recommend you read the article. 
questions? Sounds cool. Oh, I'm, I'm kind of curious how, how that interplay works between the muscle memory sort of level of like, oh, yeah, I got this. I don't even, I don't even have to think about it. I just do it. Right, right? yeah. Which is, which is good from a proficiency standpoint, but sounds like really bad if you want to keep your brain you know, going and active. It sounds like you always have to find that sort of next thing you're uncomfortable with that you can't just do off of muscle memory so that you, you continue to build those connections. You continue to basically think, right? Is that, is that what I'm getting? Like it's, it's like a never ending struggle sort of thing. Remember we talked about in, a, in our talk at 360 I did last year, we, we, I used that uh, learning to drive analogy where, you know, initially, you know, you sit down and you read the books and you do the little classes and, and you think you know how to drive a car and then, uh, you know, and then you get confident out it, you get your license and then a squirrel runs out in front of you and you freak out, right? And you're, oh my mm-hmm. God, I really don't know how to drive kind of thing. And, and we, I think we all go through that in different phases of life in terms of learning to communicate or whatever, right? But the muscle memory part comes in, like, you know how you can drive to and from work or you can go to the you know, the local hardware store or whatever. You can get in the car, you know, you don't have to think about, you know, how much pressure to put on the gas pedal, you know, how to, where to put your hands on the steering wheel, how often to check your mirrors, you know, um, what the other cars on the road are doing, what's that pedestrian doing over here, you know, what, what, the light is changing to red, what do I need to do? You don't have to go through those sort of mic, you don't have to relearn those things every single time you drive your car, right? Because over time and over practice, you have, through other experiences of driving your car, you've built up those synapses and those structures in your brain to the point where driving a car becomes a behavior, right? So in the same sense, mm-hmm. that that's sort of what I'm talking about. Like if you like Mark and I were talking about earlier about playing guitar is that um, you kind of get to the point where you've played the song enough times and you played practice that particular riff over and over again to the point where you can now play it and sing at the same time kind of thing without having to think about one or the other, right? Or, or build a more sense? complicated riff based on that or merge that riff with other riffs to make something more more complex right right so or, or if you, you take it as a as a coding exercise like anyway, so imagine i give you a, an endpoint and i say well here's the data that's going to come down to you can you build me a table view and display what's on the what's on the table right if you've done enough table views over time you know what the you know basically how to use xcode to get you know the framework you need to get the to build the model you know what what method calls you need to use to to build that table view right and of course the people new listeners of the show who are just getting into ios have no idea what i'm talking about you know what i mean but um, you'd be able to take that assignment and, and go, you know. Um, and then, you know, if you think about it from as programmers, you know, you've got your junior programmers who are just sort of, they're, they're green, they're just learning the tools, they're learning how your workflow works. They've got to keep all this, you know, they, they don't know how the continuous integration works. They're, they're just working on their particular bug because that's the level that they're working at. A more intermediate developer would be able to handle more tasks, you know, maybe do some supervising and code reviews and that kind of stuff, as well as work on their own particular tickets or whatever, bugs. Um, and then a, a senior guy is going to go. Well, okay, here, you know, you know, I already, I've already got the mastery of how the, the the integration works. I know all the tools, kind of thing, how they work. You know, I'm familiar enough with Xcode, I'm familiar enough with building apps. But I can see the big picture of well, what do we need to do in six months from now when Apple comes out with a brand new framework and messes us up or whatever? And and why should we have code standards? And why we should, you know, um, uh, basically, uh, why we should, you know, f- think ahead about what the ramifications of if I build this, you know, particular button action this way or if i name the button you know this thing as opposed to that thing you know did set as opposed to cancel or save um because you're now a senior developer and you've got all those those other chunks of, of memory already stored or structures and behaviors already made up you can extend your ability you know in terms of what you can do right 
Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So so one thing that I've actually been dabbling with for, for years now, never really too seriously, I've been trying to learn how to speak Mandarin Chinese. Right, yeah, yeah. And you know, it, it's it's very hard uh, because many of the sounds don't exist in English and they oh, have, really? yeah. they have uh, this concept of tones where the, the inflection or the way that you say a word can change the meaning of the word. Like if you say something uh, with a rising tone, like in English, that, that's a, that's a question, but right, yeah, and that can mean that in, in Chinese, but it, but it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that because some words where the the same basic sound said with a rising tone means something completely different than if you say it with a falling tone, completely different and completely independent. And a, and a Chinese speaker just knows these things intuitively, but for me, it's you know, it's that's one of the hardest things to remember to do because I kind of naturally try to use an English kind of inflection and way of speaking to say these things. And so, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll be asking a question and raise my voice, or not my raise my voice, but raise the tone at the end. And I've changed the meaning of the question I asked. So, so but anyway, so I've, I've been dabbling this for a few years by listening to these CDs and stuff like that. And I've never been super, super serious about it, and, and I'm nowhere close to being fluent. But I found, so every, every, few, every you know, year or so, I pull out the CDs and I listen to them on the way to work and talk along with them. And when I first started, I remember really struggling just saying some of the words because you got to think about the tone and then think about the sound that's a different it's not a sound you're used to and then oh stringing them together is is very hard and it's very you know very took a lot of conscious thought very you have to stumble I would stumble over these a lot but but then you know after I did it and then six months later I'd come back to it and do the same lesson well then but all of a sudden now I just kind of knew how to say that say it right and yeah. so I learned to to say to make these sounds and use these tones without thinking about it and so then now that you can say this one word without thinking about the word, you can construct an entire sentence uh, by stringing these together. Yeah, it's interesting. In the article, I talk about this, and, and it's one of the points that Dr. Tur- Turknet brought up, is is how babies learn to talk. Babies don't start off with sentences. They start off with vowel sounds, mm-hmm. right? They gurgle and they boobble and whatever, and then eventually they learn to form a word, like dada or mama or whatever, right? And um, then then w- that's how we initially learn. So their, their brains are basically forming the structures that let them say the particular vowels that they want to do. Right, and then eventually they get to the point where they can actually string sentences together and, and do it coherently. I mean, the babies, young kid children's brains obviously grow at, a, at an exponential rate, but but still, that's kind of how the how the structure works. Uh, have you ever tried um, when we went to uh, Portugal last, not this Christmas, but the Christmas before? Um, I got the app Duolingo, and I've had it for a number of years, and I, so I so I started to learn a little bit of Portuguese, so that when I got there, I could order milk, or at least I could find the milk in the grocery store, kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and it was simple. It was simple, like you know, in in um, or, or, obrigado, right? It's obrigado and obrigada, which are hello, thank you, right, for for whatever. But you say obrigado to a man, you say obrigada to a woman. But you know, I only know that because in going through the Duolingo. Um, app, it it uses the same sort of style of teaching you. Like, you don't sit down and binge it. You, you do it over time, and you have these little micro lessons, and they have this sort of reward system, which, you know, the which is kind of, uh, you kind of earn badges and stuff like that, and um, as you go through the lessons, they get com- they get increasingly harder, but and I've often wondered if, if because, um, you know, Chinese is something that's kind of interesting to learn. Russian might be another one, too, and, and to use Duol- some, an app like Duolingo, where you could learn in small chunks at a little time, 
And, and I guess what I'm coming back to is that the whole, this article or the research on the article kind of taught me that it's better to try and break things down into small pieces and, and practice them over and over again, like you said, with these particular sounds, you know, eventually get to the point. Like, I'm a self-taught guitarist. I think you are too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I bought my first guitar when I was 19 or something like that. So, um, over at the you know, five now that I'm... Huh? Over at the five and dine? No, I used my student loans to buy one, actually. <laughs> um, since you're Canadian, I thought you'd get the uh, um, the reference. Now I can't remember the guy who did it. Bought my first yeah, string over at the five and dime. Who was that guy? Oh, I can't remember. Uh, I, I, I kind of remember the reference. Canadian but I'm, I'm uh, rock musician. Aren't that Neil big. Young. It wasn't Neil Young. Gordon Lightfoot. Kind of more poppy one. Oh, God. Justin Beaver. No, <laughs> Canadian. Oh, God help us all. Ronnie Hawkins. Nah. I don't know. Okay, hold on. Monty Hall. Alex Trebek. Michael J. Fox. Uh, Anne Marie. <laughs> hold on. Alanis Morissette. I'm typing away. Hold on. Uh, let's see who else is a musician from Canada. I already mentioned Brian you know, Adams. You know, you know, oh, yeah. See, yeah. yeah. Uh, again, I, he he was after my time. Right, right. <laughs> Wasn't a big Brian Adams fan. Sorry. I have to give back my Canadian citizenship. Yeah, now. apparently. Yeah. Anyway, so that, that so the article is uh, is uh, interesting from the point of view of, of uh, how your brain works and you know how you basically can keep learning uh, things and stuff like that. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Any questions, Tommy? Not really a, a question, but it, it sounds like there's some similarity here to, um, have you ever heard of code katas? Yeah. Which is basically the, the software engineering equivalent of like martial arts katas, you know, sure. those, yeah. those practice movements that um, martial artists will, will do, like the like karate, for example. Um, yeah, wax on, wax off, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where you, you do it until it becomes second nature, and then you, you can refine and, and maybe add your twists to it. Um, so you get sort of like do it in your sleep, right? And there's a code, is, is it a codecata.com? Oh, there is codecata.com. Okay. So it's sort of based on the idea of like, all right, so if you do these sort of repetitive things, like, you know, let's do a, a, a loop that will do X or, you know, find a palindrome or do these other things. The, the sort of things we sort of uh, are complaining about for like job interviews seem more appropriate in terms of like, all right, it's pretty reasonable. I'm going to have to uh, search through some data set, find something, and then compare it to some other thing. So if you have these examples that you can just you know, practice on some regular basis um, akin to uh, like musicians practicing guitar or uh, sketch artists you know practicing sketching just just things they see just staying in practice rather than waiting for the professional side of things it, it seems like it's very very similar and related to that of, of just like building that Go, going into the muscle memory sort of area which I guess it means you, you still got to try to find new things but that it should get to sort of easier and, and you know, easier over time I think I think that's that's something that was that was striking me about these these repetitions and the, right, and the yeah, brain yeah. hacking stuff that you're you're sort of getting it into that right that you're not just like well I guess it's time to go watch some Netflix because, you know, I'm done with, you know, I'm done with my day. It's like, well, no, it's actually better if you if you keep challenging yourself, e- even if it's something like, you know, just hobby type stuff to, to yeah. keep your brain motivated and, and out of the couch potato land. Well, that, that said, too, I mean, the whole the, the other point that I really didn't go too much into is the whole idea of, of how much practicing to do. Right. And, and the thing about it is you don't kill yourself with practicing. So, yeah, no, maybe it is time to go watch Netflix. I mean, um, you know, or Pacific Rim Uprising. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or not. <laughs> 
brain off for a little bit, let it let it uh, rekindle itself. Yeah, I mean, you know, go like do something I finally else. Finished watching uh, season four of Peaky Blinders. So, oh, did you? Oh, yeah. 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 Cool. Were you surprised by the twist in the finale? Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm curious to see if Jonathan, our, you know, our co-host on Spotcast, if he would see the would catch that. But yeah, it was it was an interesting interesting little finale there. Yep. Yeah, I like the end no of spoilers. it. Spoilers. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think about the future of our our friend? What's what's his character's name again? Tommy Shelby. Tommy Shelby. Yeah. What do you think of about his future prospects in the next uh, season? They seem to be uh, moving up or coming up. Right. His prospects seem good. Yeah. Oh, we'll see. Yeah. We'll have to see. Oh wait, you know what I didn't do? My second pick. Crap. Let's do that. I thought you were. You know, I was going to comment. And I was like, well, maybe Tim just wants to go to sleep because we got uh-huh. started a little late. So I do want to go to sleep. But yeah, no, no. I do have. I have one more pick. Found it by this today actually, and it's it's not something that's relatively new. But um, if you were with all the privacy stuff going on lately, with you know the Facebook stuff going on, and and I think we've always sort of been um, spokespersons for people being aware of what's going on in their browsers and their histories and whatever. We all talk about the blockers and all that kind of stuff all the time. But there's a Safari extension for you, Safari from Duck go which are the people who make the browser that that promises not to track you um, but and there's also an iOS uh, browser you can call you can download from duckduckgo but it has a privacy uh, essentials extension Safari extension that um, basically what it does is that you install it into Safari and then anytime you go to any website it grades that website uh, from a to from e to a um, and it looks at uh, and and the way it, gra- it grades it by um, block blocking things so here let's just for sake of science look at more our own website mtjc.fm where the heck is it here oh here you go so if i load this up in in duckduckgo or in this with this extension loaded it will tell me that so i'm also still running ghostly as well but it'll tell me that uh it's blocks blocked seven trackers um so it tells you you know when you look at the site what and by the way we scored a c um c or b scored, oh we up, enhanced from a d to a c um this site doesn't have encryption so we don't have our ssl certificate in there so that's one knock against us um it, it reports on the extensions we're using. So we're, I am using Google Analytics. Um, I've got Google Ads in there, so I've got the Google syndication. We have a mailing list, so we're using MailChimp. Um, oh, CoinHive is still in there. I had a, <laughs> a tool for uh, mining coin. Um, I have some LinkShare ads in there as well, some Amazon ads, and so it re- reveals these to you. And then it also has another point here, which is um, the privacy practices, which is it claims I have unknown privacy practices. So we have no idea what uh, the mtjc.fm folks are doing with your with your information when we get it. Um, I can tell you we don't do anything with it, so feel free to you know, give us a great remark on that. Anyway, so yeah, it's simple and simple enough the extension to install. Um, just you know, under if you go to Safari under the menu or under the Safari menu to Safari extensions is on page two of uh, the extensions right now. Um, one, uh, I, I, I found out about it from a video online, and, and the the author of the video pointed out that um, the one annoying thing it does is it turns it converts your your main search engine to DuckDuckGo, which you may or may not like. Um, I, I turned it off because I prefer Google. Um, but one interesting thing that he talked about for Google Chrome is that Google Chrome is tied into their whole ad network as well. So, you know, while people are, a lot of people are using Google Chrome, um, you know, Safari by itself is, from what Apple's done, is, is doing um, more and more privacy protection. Uh, we're not sure what Google Chrome is doing, um, but uh, by adding the DuckDuckGo privacy essential extension, you get even more security. So what do you guys think about that? I think it's a good thing i just installed it as we were speaking <laughs> yeah even on the apple apple site you know you can look at the fact that they they get a b score here because their encryption they have they have no trackers installed on the apple site um and the only reason they don't get an a is because they're they have the unknown privacy practice
this uh, theory. I haven't figured out how to uh, how to um, show whether or not we're uh, you know how how to improve our our unknown practices as far as tracking goes. But uh, yeah, cool. So that's uh, DuckDuckGo Privacy Essentials. Yeah, do, you, do either one of you use DuckDuckGo? It seems like I hear more and more about it being used as a Google alternative. I use it. I've used it for years. Um, I don't use it all the time. I use it when I know I don't want to be tracked. But then I'll use Tunnel Bear for the same purpose, right? Because um, you know sometimes you just don't want to you know have everything in your face, right? So yeah, I've used I've used DuckDuckGo in the past. Um, it's it's very. I mean, from if you're used to Google, it's very um, utilitarian looking. It, it you know it seems to have a. I mean, it's clean design, but not as not as slick as Google. Of course, there's no ads, right? Yeah. Does it? How does it do on? So like uh, the, the promise of Google, like the alternative to like you know scary data analytics stuff that everybody's yeah. sort of thinking about, um, is that it should be pretty good at recognizing things like oh, um, I mean this doesn't exist anymore as a service because it's, it's defunct. But you know if I search for parse, it should know oh you probably mean the Facebook property because you've looked at that before. Mm-hmm. Um, how does DuckDuckGo deal with that? Where if they're if they're not tracking, if they're not doing that sort of personalization, like oh parse oh here's this other random thing like no 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 i didn't i didn't yeah. mean parsing in general uh you know the, or just go to duck 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 go.com and give it a give it a whirl all right let, let, let's do some some real time here let me try that go look there is an ad by the way <laughs> let's see duck duck go privacy simplified okay parse definition of parse by merriam webster dictionary another dictionary json.parse uh so it looks like the fourth result might be parse yeah, okay, at least got me parse server for the open source stuff, so that's that's good. I'm just typing in here how iOS how to type how to build a table view. I know I can get uh, pretty good results with uh oh yeah, so we got some tutorial sites here coming up. AppCoda, Apple Developer. I think like, you know, I was thinking, talking about the old dog new tricks thing, you, it would take a while to sort of um, break the habit of using uh using Google. I thought you were a big Bing user, Tim. Bing? Bing, yeah, Bing's my Bing is my <laughs> jam, man. It's your go-to browser. My jam. You found me out. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> my hack Oh, look, it's the how to build. Uh, it's just been updated this site. I wonder. Does it? Apple has a how to build an app, and it's got a uh, basic starts off with a table view. I don't know if the code's necessarily been updated yet for uh, Swift four. It would be interesting, wouldn't it? I typed how to build a table view in, and the first thing is something with tripadvisor.com. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't think that's what I wanted. On DuckDuckGo? Yep. Oh, interesting. Let me see if I get the same. Oh, result. wait, it's not an ad. It's a, it's a link, right? Oh, it was actually an ad, but it's a link at the same time. I put into without putting iOS in the front of it. it it brought me up a bunch of woodworking sites right how to build a table uh, yeah 100, 100 uh, 1600 woodworking projects skills so, doesn't matter yeah so the third entry is about ios yeah mine is the fourth i'm, I'm in canada a eh? mm. mm, so here's what it did for me so i think it tried to do the google-esque style thing of like here's a you know a, a choice answer yeah uh, which notably got google in trouble for things you know during political season uh so the thing it gave me or how to build a table view table view one word yeah is I uh, create table from view and says SQL server does not support create table as select. Mm. Okay. The f- next res- or the first actual result is uh, an ad for kids desks and chairs safe on kids desks <laughs> and chairs at this retailer uh, SQL create table from view yeah. uh, make table view data management toolbox for some sort of a geographic information system. And uh, what is one, two, three, the fourth result is iOS 
how to build a table view with collapsible sections. Yep, that's what I got. So for me, the SQL 3 table view is the second one on my list. Strangely enough, I don't have anything about woodworking. That's pretty weird. Here's here's one to try this. Try iOS Touch oh, ID that, tutorial. I table view is one word, not two words. Yep. And so, so by contrast, I, d- I used Google, right? And I happen yeah. to be logged in as myself. So this is like the, the ultimate personalization route. How to build a table view. Table view, one word. The very first result is start developing iOS apps Swift. Create a table view, which is kind of what I'd expect. So uh, I'm not really rendering strong judgment because, as Tim mentions, there are legitimate reasons to have a search engine that does not do um, any of the tracking type stuff. You, you might have real reasons you might want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that's not to say like, oh, wow, it's unicorns and rainbows uh, by going this route. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Huh. I just Googled uh, or Googled. I went to Google again and broke my own rule. Oh, well. Yep, that's that's my pick. Okay. <laughs> yeah, need more security is what we need. So I think the I think the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, is almost certainly a huge overreaction and overreach from the European Union. Yeah. But the one thing it does have going for it is that it's it's really starting the conversation, right? Like the pendulum had swung way too far towards like we can track anything we want and do all sorts of, of terrible things that might impact your life, and now people are finally saying, oh yeah, you know what this uh, this online stuff this data stuff, um, it's real, right? Like, you know, we, we need to start reevaluating uh, the sort of trade-offs we're making and the sort of stuff we're like, wait a minute, like, if, if this was, like, somebody following you around and, and watching you consistently, like, that that wouldn't be acceptable, uh, legally or morally or mm-hmm. ethically, right? So I think we're, we're starting to, to tune the, the pendulum a little bit back towards the uh, the center or, or, or closer to being balanced, I think, where, I mean, we just spent some time here talking about, you know, privacy aspects and stuff, but no, I guess I view a lot of this stuff as like, look, fire fire is dangerous, right? And yet fire has tons of uses when it's carefully uh, managed and, and, and respected, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you probably have a gas stove. Guess what? There's fire in your house, right? And yet, and yet it's not the same as like an uncontrolled forest fire, which is where I think data tracking has, has gotten into the like, we need Smokey the Bear telling people like, for love of God, you know, make sure you don't start a forest fire. Well, I guess that's it for the week. Um, hey, Jaime, if people want to get a hold of you on the interwebs, where would they look? I'm on Twitter as at Dev of the Hair. Okay, and Mark, how people get in touch with you? Mark R at smapsoft.com. All right, as I usually say at the top of the show, my name is Timitra. I am in Toronto, Ontario, and I can be found on Twitter at T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A. And until next week, we'll say bye-bye. Bye. 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 If you want to find out more about the podcast or see the episode show notes, visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. You can get in touch with us on the website or follow us on Twitter at mtjc underscore podcast. If you have feedback or questions, send us a tweet with the hashtag AskMTJC. If you like the show, please consider recommending us to a friend, writing a review on iTunes, or pledging any amount at patreon.com slash mtjc. You can find details on how to help us out on our website at mtjc.fm slash sponsor us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
You know, we didn't talk at all about third-party watch faces on uh, Apple Watch. We didn't? Enough people enough people sort of uh, wondering about that. I don't really know what the impetus for the rumor is. Um, I don't know if it's for like a couple a, of years, actually. They were talking about that in Watch 2. Like, that was one of the rumors in Watch 2. Yeah, but it, it, it makes me wonder, is this like the Apple TV rumor? And not like Apple TV, but like the television sort of rumor of like, oh, it's, it's coming next year. Oh, it's coming next year. Right. Uh, or is there something here where like somebody has leaked something from WWDC like oh yeah it turns out we're, we're gonna have an API to build your own watch face suddenly it seemed like that was floating around on Twitter and uh, friend of the show oh, uh, Joe Chaplinski was rendering his opinion which I respect but uh, I hope isn't the case uh, I think his point was like well you know could be a lot of really crappy third party watch faces out there if, yeah. if they do yeah. release it right there's no doubt like there will be a million terrible ones uh, or at least ones that are like oh look somebody stole the, the tag Tag, tag higher. I don't know how that name is pronounced. Like the, the Swiss watch, right? Like they they, mm-hmm. they stole that one mightily. All right, like that's true. Yeah. And then there'll be those little nuggets of like, oh wow, somebody really thought of a great watch face. That's what I'm leaning towards. Like I'd, I'd like to see this thing be more open because I'm I'm not gonna go download one of those crappy watch faces. I'm gonna see something on you know like uh, Rene Ritchie's like here are the top ten third party watch faces. Thank you, Rene Ritchie. That's gonna be my pick of the week. You know, yeah. and made my life a little better. Yeah, well, I don't know. That could be this year's stickers dude if it is like maybe we should throw down an mtjc third party <laughs> watch face yeah <laughs> all it does is what <laughs> uh, all it does is uh show the time in 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 like one of our faces with like i don't know four different red, face red expressions one of, our fa- one of our faces each time you you open the watch it shows a different one right Ooh, if they open you know how you can tap on the mini mouse one right uh, probably the mickey mouse one too and it'll make a sound presumably the the toy story watch face will do that too um maybe we could have a um what's it called not a voice box it's like one of those uh like sound box sort of things that yeah so it is where like people will call up and be like clips of arnold schwarzenegger and trying to order at like taco bell or something uh, I think the other thing I've been thinking about related to WWDC is, you know, there are a lot of people who are going to be even more upset when all of these third-party Twitter clients become useless again. Mm-hmm. And people are rightfully so saying, what the heck, like Twitter stopped supporting its own desktop client. And and maybe, maybe the saving grace is the rumored Marzipan, where you have that sort of unified way to build once and run on both iOS and macOS. Like, it, it won't necessarily be great, but presumably it will, you know, meet Twitter's needs of like, all right, well, we don't have to spend a lot of time and effort, you know, making sure that our experience is there for new features that we're building. And of course, the the ads part that can continue to fund their uh, their enterprise. Yeah. I mean, in my mind, like if I think about, all right, if I took Twitter out of my hand and blew it up to like as if I was running the simulator, would it really be that different? It, it really wouldn't. I don't use a lot of gestures. Uh, <laughs> camera is interesting, but it could be interesting if you could hook into like your laptop's camera or a web webcam kind of simulate the uh the effect of you know having an actual front facing or rear facing camera on the device yeah could be have you yeah, guys have seen Ready Player One yet? Is it any good? I have. It's great. Have you seen it, Jaime? I have not seen it. I was very curious because you've, you've read the books, and I was very curious on your, your opinion of it. So it sounds like you liked it. 
Yeah. So, well, I, I know on a couple of episodes ago, I was saying that, you know, I kind of kind of think you should read the book. I do think you should read the book, but it definitely is not required to read the book before you see the movie. Right. The thing and because the, they, they do change, they change some of the plot points or plot vehicles or methods of how you get from one place to the other in the story uh, in order to get it into a movie, because there's some parts of the of the story in the book that take months. Right. To, to figure things out. Whereas, you know, they've got like in two hours to sort of expose all this. This, these plot points and get a, you know character reveal characters and stuff like that. There's lots of Easter eggs in it. I mean, it's, it's a movie about Easter eggs, right? I think you guys kind of know that, right? Right. Mm-hmm. You can get that from the trailer that there's this this one golden egg that everybody's trying to get, right? Um, I, I don't know that the the real implication of it comes across, but it's imagine like the world that this guy's created is like uh, Facebook, Google, you know, every game manufacturer all rolled into one giant experience. It's like Second Life on, you know, steroids, right? Um, you know, it's gotten to the point in society where everybody is using this virtual reality um, experience, you know, with, a, with sort of a Google Glass kind of thing uh, to immerse. And in fact, in, in, the, in the novel, the kids go to school in the Oasis, right? Um, like, you know, they don't have they don't have physical schools anymore. They, they actually just, you know, they dial in, as it were, right? Um, but they couldn't, they couldn't sort of have that whole thing. And um, I don't think I'm giving too much away by saying that, you know, because this um, Oasis is so valuable IP, as IP, um, you know, because every, because it's a huge commerce thing. Like the entire society, the society practically runs on this Oasis um, machine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes big business is interested in getting their hands on this stuff, which is why they have all these. You know, they recruit all. It's like you know, like if you want to build a big giant mega app, you go and recruit the best developers you can. Well, they go and recruit the best game players, and you know that so they have these brainiac game game. Uh, people who understand the mechanics and they have the history and all that kind of stuff and they're trying to crack this this thing so so they do have that in the movie and they have that in the book but they kind of they're kind of sort of play them out in different ways so um i'm, I'm curious though I, I, it's funny i'm i don't know i don't know if i enjoyed the movie less than the book i mean i, th- I think i definitely definitely did right um you know it wasn't to me i don't know like a property like star wars or a star trek movie i would watch them over and over again i'll probably watch this one you know over time i'll watch it repeatedly but uh, you know, um, it was an enjoyable movie. But I don't think I would go out of my way to you know go see it again in the theater. I'd wait. I'll wait till it comes back out on you know Netflix or something and watch it there. You know, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. Definitely go see Indeed. it. It's definitely worth seeing, especially if you if you grew up in the seventies or eighties or even nineties, right? Did I cool. ruin it for cool. you? <laughs> <laughs> no spoilers. Yeah. yeah, I didn't say anything that's not really in the trailers, right? But you, mm-hmm. you maybe the trailers aren't quite as clear as how as how I just explained it. But it definitely is. It, it, I mean, you know. If, if people are sitting on the fence about watching the movie or reading the book, I say read the book for sure, or get the yeah, audio book. I think book I'm going to read the book first, even even if it uh, even if they're different. I'm a, I'm a little afraid that seeing the movie would kind of ruin the book a little bit. Yeah, because I mean there there's a lot of reveals. You know, um, yeah. you, you kind of go along a, on this journey with this kid because it's told in the first person uh, perspective, right? And actually, if you if you're into audio books, the audio the book on Audible is actually read by Will Wheaton, and he does a really good job. You know, Will Wheaton from of Star Trek. Trek, right, he does a really good job of, of uh, reading it. So yeah, in the in the book, there's like all these different worlds, right? And one of the worlds is is called Will Wheaton World, mm. <laughs> which must have been kind of trippy when he got to that section of the book and and had to sort of you know talk about himself in third person, right? <laughs> Will Wheaton, he was the guy from Stand by Me, right? Yeah, yeah, and Star Trek, yeah, the kid, yeah, Wesley Crusher, yeah, yeah. he's also in Big Bang Theory, mm-hmm. as Sheldon's nemesis, or one of his nemesis. I think everybody's Sheldon the nemesis in that <laughs> that TV show. <laughs> 
I'm also enjoying Young Young Sheldon. If you guys have watched that one, the one about him as a kid. I watched one episode. I haven't watched it since. Is it good? I mean, it, yeah, it's funny. I mean, the kid the kid's really brilliant. I mean, or the the, the yeah. writing of the kid is really funny, and his sister and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's it's sitcommy. Oh, by the way, have you been watching Roseanne? Um, Jaime, I've missed the how many like the past one or two episodes, but I think as I mentioned in my uh, my quick hit review, like, yeah, that's kind of okay because it's not the sort of show you just like. Oh, I have to watch every week. I'm like, mm. Yeah. I'm sure when it's on, I'll watch it, and I don't watch it. That's fine. I'll probably see it in reruns or something. Just well, I was kind of disappointed by the food. first by the first um, episode or two. Right, the very first one didn't. It kind of sort of looked like I don't know they were phoning it in or, or why they're doing it. You know, I couldn't really sort of get my head wrapped around that. But I have now <laughs> watched four episodes or three episodes. Yeah, four episodes, I guess. And you know, I have it on the PV. I'll watch it when it comes on for sure. Like it's 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 a good half hour. It's you know, it's my Pacific Rim, right? Uh, just put it on and <laughs> tune out and listen to. Roseanne Hackle and right, you know, right. the humor's good. Which, by the way, if, if you uh, if you don't see Pacific Rim Uprising in the theater, you probably never should see it because it it's definitely a, a you know, watch movie. things blow up, eat your popcorn, relax your mind. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I saw the other day, I, I, and I don't know what I don't know if it's in wide distribution or not, but uh, Borg versus McEnroe. Um, you know, Bjorn Borg was uh, Wimbledon oh. champion five years in a row, or he was at the point in the story he was four years in a row, and and he, this is when John McEnroe came up and uh you know he was sort of i, I grew up I grew up with a guy who played tennis in high school and and um so we were all into the you know Elie Stassi and Bjorn Borg and you know Jim Connors and Chrissy Elliott and all that kind of those people of that ilk and so it was really interesting to relive that whole period of time right so of when these guys were playing tennis so it's a really good movie it's all it's actually written it, like the when they're speaking swedish they're actually speaking swedish with english subtitles and there's you know there's italian and like all the languages are done in the actual native language it's it's done very much like a European art film, but it's still a very, very good, compelling story. It's like it's like the Rocky of tennis, if you think about it that way, right? But better than Rocky, <laughs> if you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah. yeah, I'll have to see that one. It'd be interesting to see the the old style equipment because they were using the oh yeah wooden, wooden rackets, rackets and yeah, 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 and they were obsessed about the 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 sound that the, the the tension of the strings and the note it makes when they bang it, and you know, yeah, it's and it's funny. Borg got really really um, superstitious. Um, I was. I heard a couple of interviews about him and like, you know, he, he got to the point where, you know, he would have, he would have to rent the same car, you know, to drive and he would, he would drive in the same car. We stayed in the same hotel room. His parents were only allowed to come and watch him play every second year. And they had to wear the same clothes, um, for the whole entire weekend while they were there. Cause they couldn't, they couldn't do anything to jinx him. You know, I don't understand. So everything was sounding reasonable as far as superstitions go. Yeah. Um, except for the every second year, like that's a strange well, well, yeah, I don't, that's to. not in the movie actually that's just, this is just stuff about Borg that, that I was reading and learning about, learning about him after the fact right so yeah because he was like he was like considered the ice man because he had, he showed no emotion he put everything you know he put every, his emotion was always in check and there's a reason why you know you have to go see the movie to, to, to figure that out but and McEnroe was the complete opposite he was like you know get yelling at the judges and using dropping the F-bomb all over the place and spitting and you know and being brash yeah, I think and, huh? people like those polar opposites like Pete Sampras versus Andre Agassi. Yeah, Agassi was pretty pretty out there as well, right? So Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal. Yeah, you know, those, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, could, I could see that. Yeah, yeah and I mean, and it, it was amazing because because I, I saw an interview with with uh, Shia LaBeouf who plays, uh, and it's it's like he was born to play this role, like you know, because he's got the whole background of being a brat and whatever and getting arrested and things. And so he, he was he was like you know he was a great great guy to great actor to choose for the role. Um, but he's left handed, right? 
or sorry, uh, uh, was left-handed, right? So he kind of, and this is kind of a spoiler, but it doesn't really wreck the movie at all. But because they sort of Jimmy Kimmel was like, you guys played like tennis, like amazing, like you guys were like whatever. And so they actually reproduced every play as if it was a dance, right? So they actually went through the motions of of of, of every move, and you know, like so when you watch the original footage and you watch the original this movie, they're making the same plays, and the, the ball goes to the same part of the court, and all they reproduce that the whole thing amazingly because the tennis ball is computerized yeah that's, that's <laughs> kind of what i thought it was like forrest gump style cause yeah yeah normally in movies is like i can tell and be like oh like this this actor doesn't know how to play tennis yeah and sometimes it's like oh the producers don't even know how tennis yeah. works yeah <laughs> or the the director doesn't know yeah. um so seeing them go to that level of accuracy granted they had to you know fake it with it's a digital a, piece it's, a, but, it's an event like you know like it's like one of these things where if you're into tennis you you know each point of the of the game like you know how some you get some guys who know who scored their home run in this game in this series in 1942 and you know, in baseball and that kind of stuff same that same level of attention to detail is in is in this right so it and, and you know it's kind of it's it's shot sort of a, from a cinematographer point of view as opposed to a sports you know um sports cast so but it totally is believable like, it's a, it, amazing really good movie i really enjoyed it right so you know it's not your barn burner but yeah like, you know if you can if you can see it in the theater it'd be great right because it's a 70 millimeter film and all that kind of stuff right and the music's good and the, the atmosphere is good and the tension is good it's a really well done movie except for the subtitle reading part which i really don't enjoy <laughs> <laughs> but you know like when we were talking about in, in spot cast we were, you know the klingons it, we, you had to have the klingon in the natural language with the subtitles and, but you don't understand that in the first episode right it takes like you know probably the eighth or ninth episode into the series before you realize why it was necessary to have klingon spoken in the native tongue right yeah i mean i i think i i, don't know, I guess because i'm not bothered by subtitles and actually yeah uh, prefer them in many circumstances um it never really got me as a as a problem for yeah. star trek discovery and i feel like it would definitely not be a problem for this because we're watching um oh, i can never remember the name of the show i think it's called black spot zone blanche it's a french um i don't know how to describe it like a like a french stranger things which i said that about dark as being right. like a like yeah. a german stranger things but it's really not but it's like you know, it's more adult but it feels like that sort of thing like what the heck is going on here and there's some mysterious things going on and in this case it's a, a small village in france um mm. plays out a little bit like uh twin peaks in, in sort of like oh there's like a new detective coming to town sort of thing and dealing right, with crazy right. locals um and that one's like i have to watch it when i can pay attention to it like i really can't be eating or anything because I, I don't speak french yeah so yeah yeah i have to read the subtitles to understand what they're doing yeah it's funny i've, I've been watching the americans right and I'm, all, I'm caught up to the, the new season this is the, the last season so they have we were showing it on um on uh, uh what is it to showcase here which is like your uh, i forget what it's, it's a, i forget what the compar- comparable american channel is but so they, they were showing it binge watching or fx i think it was on fx right actually now i think about it and um so I'll, I'll often i'll be coding on my computer when when they're talking and so the russian is all spoken in russian with subtitles right and so i'll be sitting there what you know we're coding away and i'll realize i'm listening to the russian people talking and it's gotten i've gotten so used to listening to russian that i forget to look up at the screen and read what they're saying <laughs> i have to hit the 
the rewind button on the on the on the, the PVR to, to go back and and uh, read what they said. You know, <laughs> right? I think that's what I don't like about about subtitles is I, is I I like I like to look at the the imagery as opposed to having a stare at the stare at the bottom of the screen, right? And miss some things, right? But it's funny you get so used to the sound of the again it's that neuroplasticity, right? You get so used to the sound of Russian words being spoken that I almost feel like I you know understand the language when I actually don't, right? At all, you know, other than da and yet and you know placebo and all that kind of stuff, right? Well, they say if if you want to learn a language or if you're traveling to a place and you need to learn a language, it it pays to just listen to any any kind of broadcast you can in right. that language for just a while without making any attempt to understand it because you just you start to learn the the feel of the language and the cadence of the of the language. Yeah, you get an ear for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Yeah, yeah. I often wonder about that. Like like I do that with French too. I mean, like I've you know been speaking French since I was like seven, but I'm not fluent by any stretch of imagination, right? Um, you know, like I, I, I would struggle to put together a sentence if I was ordering, you know, corned beef on rye, hold the mayo kind of thing. Like, you know, um, I, you know, I, I know how to get into a restaurant. I know. What, I don't know. In France, they'd probably spit on you if you ordered corned beef on rye. Yeah. Well, you know what I mean? Like my, my point was, <laughs> it was, was, was to be specific about what I want. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but I often sometimes, sometimes I'll watch like a French news ca- or even a French kids show. Right. Cause you know, like we have that luxury. I guess you have the same thing with Spanish. You can watch, you know, kids TV in Spanish and, and it's spoken at a very sort of, you know, basic level, right. Um, that eventually you could sort of pick it up. Right. Mm-hmm. You would think, right. See, we just hacked our brains by on this podcast. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Your brain will change by listening to this episode. Yep. yep. Anywho, I guess on that note, I should sign off cause I got to pack it in and go to work tomorrow. Yeah. <sighs> cool. Well, I just got to figure out the quantities for our space gray t-shirts and, uh, yeah, I have a feeling this will be a popular popular shirt i don't know what do you think which one was it is it the, it's the i i entered this the wwc lottery and all i got was this lousy t-shirt, lousy t-shirt. should i give some away at uh at wwc yeah definitely yeah 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 so i can get I, I'm, I'm i might get the same amount ordered up and yeah and I, I hopefully people who are if you're listening to the show and you're going to wwc you certainly hit us up for a t-shirt and we'll, we'll send one out to you mm-hmm. you as well of course mark <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah yeah but i gotta you know throw some money at those guys and get some shirts made up yeah so all right well, we'll all talk right. to you guys later talk to you later talk to you later okay bye bye hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands and they partner with factories that prioritize safe ethical and responsible manufacturing I love that Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.